What is it like to be the Department of Defense's highest ranking openly transgender official? What was it like serving in the U.S. Navy in the era of don't ask, don't tell? The Honorable Sean G. Skelly, performing the duties of Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, answers these questions and more. I'm your host, Hadid Ali. Welcome to Driving Impact. Driving Impact, an exclusive insight into the personal backgrounds and careers of trailblazers on the front lines of policy. Ms. Kelly, it's such an honor to host you here at CSIS. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and when was the last time, remind me, that you were uh, at the center? I think I was last at the center just about a year ago for a Chatham House Rules discussion on Ukraine. So it's such a pleasure to host you here again and have you on Driving uh, Impact. Really looking forward to hearing more about your story and your journey. Uh, Ms. Kelly, what did 10-year-old Sean Kelly want to be? I know what I wanted to do, and that was to fly something, anything, a plane, a jet, even helicopters. Um, I grew up in Long Island, New York, where there was back in the 70s, it had been a long-standing uh, aviation industry there. It was really a place of, of, of aviation that often isn't thought of now in association with Long Island, where I grew up. Were there any mentors or friends or people around you that also helped with this Park for passion for aviation? Very much so. I, I am sitting here today. I think it's a direct line from the mentors I had. People that I now recognize were mentors. Back then, they were just uh, the husband of my grandmother's best friend and, and their son. Um, so my mentors were a gentleman who had been a Marine naval aviator in World War II in Southwest Asia. Think of the Guadalcanal campaign and the like, and who won a distinguished flying cross for his service in World War II. Their son, who was uh, just a couple years younger than my own mother, um, became the first naval aviator to go straight from flight school to fly the now very famous F-14 Tomcat. And he wound up becoming one of the more famous fighter pilots of his time with an incredible number of hours and carrier landings and the like. And when I was in high school, they became my mentors. And it was all over but the crying from that point on. I wanted to fly off of aircraft carriers and what they instilled in me, some of the... Um, values that they instilled in me, uh, I, I bring to work every day to this day. What are some of those values? Uh, it started with um, the admonition to be a ready room cowboy. Ready room is a place where the aviators brief and wait to, wait to go fly, is whenever you have the opportunity to do the thing that you're doing, then it was fly, go fly. If you're gonna be any good at it, you have to actually do it. Seize every opportunity and be hungry for it. And now that's come along to any hard problem or if I'm asked to do anything, the answer is yes. And then ask what it is I just agreed to and figure out how to tackle that problem. And that's applicable to any type of work that, that we're doing or wanting to pursue, right? Being ready. And that's the definition to me of leadership. It's right? also um, experience matters, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can study all you like, but the experience in the arena, experience with the task is where the really deep learning comes into play. So is that uh, what influenced your decision to then pursue a career as a naval flight officer? It was pretty uh, emotional, and that, that is the coolest looking thing I can imagine doing. 
um, I want to go fly airplanes off of aircraft carriers um, because most of the uh, airplanes on a Navy aircraft carrier in the in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 70s and 80s were made by the Grumman Corporation, the then Grumman Corporation, which was headquartered on Long Island. Um, my classmates in elementary school and high school, their parents built those airplanes. Um, so it was very much a home thing. But then I learned that I was blind as a bat, <laughs> so I wasn't going to be a pilot. But thankfully, due to the fact that I was, you know, enraptured with naval aviation, we had a lot of naval flight officers, navigators, and weapon systems officers. So I could just take another seat in those same aircraft. Are you someone who enjoys flying and traveling in general now, or how do you? Uh, not if I'm not up front. <laughs> right. You don't want to be a passenger in the back. <laughs> Without the ability to look out, look out, mm. see all the things, see all the instruments, I, I still enjoy it. I still, um, when we go fly, we were just on a trip last week. Um, I always like uh, to look outside where I can get a peek and and then go to the, you know, there's always on the app or on the, on the seat back screen how high you are and how fast you're going and go, I think we're at 3,000 feet right now. I think we're probably maybe based on this altitude about five minutes from landing and then I get, and then I get to check it because they tell you that <laughs> on the screen and, so, and that's what I was paid to do. Now it's a bloody computer doing all that work when it used to be me. <laughs> I'm sure that's a, a difficult switch, right? Technology's great. <laughs> the, the one thing I certainly learned through the course of my career is technology's going to fail you sooner or later, and you better be ready to pick up for it. Mm -hmm. We can't just count on technology by itself, no. right? Sean, as you look back to uh, your upbringing, what are some of the values that were instilled in you that you think you still are utilizing on a daily basis as a leader today? Right. It comes direct from my father. I don't think we ever had an explicit talk about it, but it, it certainly accumulated over time that the most important thing you are when you're part of a team is a teammate. Mm. You know, you're not always asking for the ball or looking to step up front and gra grab the microphone, but what does it take to score? What does it take to succeed, to do the thing? Um, it's always team, the team's mission, whether that's win the game or get the work done. Uh, and really to, to call yourself out and say, hey, I need a break, or what about me? Well, I wound up not feeling comfortable with having that, you know, uh, injecting myself into the team. As I've aged, I've realized that's a skill I'm still trying to perfect as to how to, that self-care that you need, while even while if you want to actually work hard and succeed, you actually have to take care of yourself and look out for yourself. While, and you can still be a good teammate while doing that. It actually makes you a better teammate because it helps you recognize when other people need a breather, a break, or need a little help in that way. But it really all started with team and mission first. Team and mission. I always like to make the analogy with sports because I think there's a lot of overlap uh, between leadership and teams and then also you know different different sports that have the same the same lessons i think i was set up for a, a life in the military and and government by um somehow i i was drawn towards playing defense <laughs> any place where you could just play defense or defense was really definable uh in hockey in um in basketball in soccer Put me close. I'm going to stop the thing. I'll be the last line of defense. I don't need to score. You, you all score. I'm going to make sure they don't score mm -hmm. in that way. Um, 
similar to my um, my love of music, I don't really focus on the singer and the lead guitar player. Mm. I really have an affinity for the rhythm guitar player who's doing all doing all the foundational you know work as well as like bass players and drummers. Mm. They're they're the ones who are really the rhythm section who drive the thing while the while the cool kids do stuff over the top. Mm. I love that beautiful connection. And now that you've brought up music, we have to talk about rock. So you're a huge fan of rock, if I'm not mistaken, and you always like to go to different uh, concerts. I know you've been to one of my favorite venues in uh, in D.C., which is 930. Yes. Um, and I know you've been there many times and a lot of other venues uh, in D.C. Uh, you've shared a little bit about, you know, why you why you loved going to these concerts. But what is uh, that passion for music? Where does it come from? And um, why do you enjoy taking the time to do that for yourself? I think over the years, I've had, my professional journey really hasn't forced me or given, the, given me the opportunity to be a deep expert on something. I have such admiration for people who are true experts um, through, through learning, through experience, through you know, deep study and practice. I really admire that and I, re I really enjoy working with experts, but um, I've become a, an obscene generalist and a process person. And what I see in music is you know the uh, the 10,000 hours to, to achieve perfection and, and expertise in something and to watch those people do things from their, which, which are generally lifelong passions for them, to watch them do it so well. And the result is, unfortunately, most of the shows that I want to go see don't even start till 9 or 10 p.m. on a weeknight. Uh, so that hurts. But um, there's reward in it when I'm in a Often I go by myself because of you know people are busy, people have families and kids, and uh, I'll find myself in the middle of a crowd of relative strangers. We're all there to see this performance of this band, this or artist, and at some point, almost you know without fail, I will feel that I'm smiling. Mm. I'm listening. I'm enjoying the music. There's somebody I've always studying their previous performances. Mm -hmm. There's some artists that I could be accused of stalking because um, <laughs> I catch them every time they come to town for over a decade. Um, but at some point, I will feel that, you know, there already been a 12 or 13 hour day before I make my way to the 930 club. But then I'll feel that I'm smiling in the middle of a song. And I'm like, yep, that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an objective of mine to find a way to go to a concert by myself. Because I think what you said is important, right? There's there's something beautiful about going to a concert without knowing anyone in the crowd, but sharing something so and, profound, and, and right? Then all of a sudden you find out that the song that you wanted to hear because you knew the lyrics of, they did as well. Mm -hmm. That's that's a great example. I look forward to, to finding a time where I can uh, do that. Um, Ms. Kelly, you've served on active duty with the Navy for a little over 20 years, uh, starting off as a Naval Flight Officer. Did you expect to serve for that long? No, not at all. There was never a plan except to go fly off of aircraft carriers and as a 17-year-old, and I wound up getting a Navy ROTC scholarship. Mm -hmm. I wound up uh, eventually getting uh, selected for flight school. I uh, got into flight school, managed to graduate, get winged, and for a carrier, get selected for a carrier aircraft, which wasn't guaranteed, um, and then found myself flying off of aircraft carriers and then pinching myself for the better part of 20 years. Um, so I'm really fortunate, blessed, and I'd even say privileged over that time to have been able to take my childhood dream, find my way to it, and then from there, that uh, there, again, as I've said before, there's a direct line from that to where I am today. I'm sure there are many, many memorable moments uh, throughout <laughs> your 
uh, incredible career. Any moment that really sticks with you uh, or any lessons that you've taken? One of the early, the, the, the first time I had to do something that wasn't in the classroom in flight school was a, a little simulator. It was, it was essentially a faux aircraft cockpit, with, but with the instruments. And it was really the introduction to um, instrument navigation, how you navigate at night, at dark, over long distances. And um, I failed it. Mm. I had gone through high school, got the scholarship, went through college. I didn't, I never had to try very hard academically. I certainly paid attention, attended class, took notes, thought I was studying for tests, got into my first application environment, and I failed it. I, I didn't hit enough turns on time. I blew through an altitude, uh, you know, missed that we should have leveled off because um, the instructor was playing the part of a pilot that I was directing, which is a thing a, a navigator or naval flight officer is taught to do. And I, I think I missed something in the brief. So those were three what we call below averages. Which, which was equal to a failure, or as we call in naval aviation, a down. Mm -hmm. So I downed a flight. You only get to down three flights, and I downed the very first one. A simulator was equivalent to a flight in that regard. I know now, after having become, become an instructor myself later, he was a terrible instructor because he offered no coaching in, through the way or there was no debrief and feedback after. But that was an incredible shock to my life experience at that point. How did, I, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity, I'd, um, I was early in my class, so a lot of other classmates had to do that one before we moved on to successive events. I spent 10 days, two weeks, searching my soul, searching myself as to what do, what, do, what does it mean to prepare? What does it mean to appreciate the challenge that is that one event that lasts for, with, with the pre-brief, with the, with the event, and then the, and then the debrief after, maybe it was two whole hours. What do I have to do better? And what I what that started for me on a joy on a journey now still lifelong is to how to understand the things that you need to be preparing for and what preparation looks like when you start to define what success in that moment looks like and how that then contributes to the successive events or successes or challenges that you can associate it with. It changed a lot for me that day. That face planting, comic splat of a failure that was really um, pretty impactful for the potential of my. Um, graduating flight school. So although in that moment it was a it was a moment of failure, but looking back it was it was an, it was a crucible and it was mm -hmm. really an inflection point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had set out a time to retire, right? After about 20 years or so. Yeah. But something happened and then you stay on a little bit longer. Can you share with us and our audience why you decided to stay? So, um we mentioned earlier, I didn't have a plan as for how long I was going to stay. As it, it turned out to be, I, I, I joined to, to get the opportunity to fly. I flew and it's like, okay, I still owe some more time. I have to do it again. I left flight school and I left my initial, uh, my secondary training after flight school saying, I never want to be one of those instructor people. Then two years later, looking at the opportunities and having flown and then accumulated uh, over a thousand hours and a couple hundred carrier landings, the best opportunity to keep racking up that time wasn't as instructor, the thing I swore I wanted no part of. So I did that. And when I did that, I liked learning about leadership in that way. Um, then the opportunities are stay or go. There was successive stays or goes, um, which then led me to get the opportunity to get back in the cockpit again. Um, and then I realized, you know what? I think I want to go back to school. Naval War College is available to me. In residence, oh, and by the way, we don't have to uh, go to an outside university now, it's actually fully fully accredited and degree granting. 
double win. Um, and, and with that came another tour that was required, and then you're on the cusp of being able to reach the, the then 20-year uh, minimum for a full retirement. Um, and so, but again, I expected to do another tour because I learned I really liked having greater responsibility. I had been leading teams, been a squadron, not a commander, but a, a leader in a squadron, junior people. I really liked it. And I was getting gaining an appetite that I still have to this day for hard things. So I expected that I would go past the tour that took me to 20, but then I figured out um, who I was as a person. And um, again, that was another hard stop, an almost comic shock um, that challenged everything I thought I knew about myself when I came to understand my identity and mm. as, as, a, as a trans person in that way. And it was almost a science fiction movie type moment where everything slowed down, practically froze, the room went dark, and then it kind of became a spotlight, kind of what we're in, <laughs> lit environment here, and simultaneously the, the noise floor of the world and it actually happened uh, around a, a room, a reception, a cocktail hour, and I went. I sat down at the edge of this room, and all of a sudden, it just stopped. Mm. Sound went down. I could hear a pin drop in my mind, and it's like, oh, that's what this all has been. The the questioning, the uh, confusion over the course of my adult life. It's like, oh, am am I transgender? What? And it just stopped, and it's like. I'm actually calm with that. I'm actually comforted by saying those words. What does that mean? What has changed? If that's true, I have no idea what comes next. If that's true, I'm, I become fearful for my ability to stay in the Navy. My ability to stay in the Navy is directly tied to my then understanding of how to support my family. Um, had a um, barely four-year-old son. What do I do for a job if I get, what happens if I get th discovered all of it within what seemed like seconds? My understanding of my place in the world had changed and it all went to unknown, went to reasonably understood as to the options that, that lay before. Like, do I want to maybe try and find my way as to a uniformed professor, professor at one of the war colleges? I like that environment. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I want to try to take a run at a, a, a military job in State Department or take another try at the Pentagon because I had actually been approved to go to the Pentagon, but we couldn't find a seat. And they said, go somewhere else. And I wound up being attached to the Marine Corps, which was an incredible opportunity at the end of time. So there I was, a Navy officer working for a Marine one-star general in a Marine command, supporting Marines and sailors in combat. And our job was literally to find life-saving solutions for them in combat. And we, and we were achieving quantifiable, measurable success in doing that. And in the middle of that, my personal life just stopped, turned upside down, and I had to figure out what to do from that point forward. And for me, it was, I need to go find some help somebody to talk mm. through with it. A thing I had never done before because it was never, could never be about me. Um, and that took a couple of months. Uh, the internet in 2006 was still certainly not like it is today. Very few professionals advertise themselves on the web as the way they do now. And resources and how to find your way to think people and things wasn't quite so easy. Um, but it took me a couple of months to find someone who might be able to help me with it, who had some experience dealing with it. And, um, then when I sat down and talked to that professional, it really helped me confirm after a period of time, yep, that was right. Mm -hmm. This is who I am and what do I, what, now what do I do with that? And I realized the thing I had to do is I had to do something constructive. Waiting 
uh, to the 20-year mark to be able to get out um, to have served honorably and have the full benefits and then take with it my experience. And as all, many of us who serve in national security know, one of your, your greatest um, assets is your security clearance. Like if I get thrown out, mm. I don't know how I'd get discovered. I don't know why I'd be thrown out specifically, but it would probably be something to do with conduct unbecoming. Would they take my clearance? I don't know. Or would they be vindictive? I don't know. You're a Navy officer with the Marine Corps. What's that going to mean? What's that scandal, semi-scandal, or just not going to be? All unknowns. Um, but once I was able to find a professional who helped me, then I was able to begin to rationalize what was right for me. I, To this day, I've had the opportunity to stay with that um, therapist mm -hmm. for over a dozen years. And um, she's in my head forever is the woman who helped me save my life, um, to help me figure out that I wasn't truly alone, that what I was saying was understandable and relatable and I could figure it out. And so we figured out what, how I could be constructive with my situation while being terrifyingly closeted for a couple of years mm -hmm. in that way and begin to make progress and become comfortable. I didn't tell anyone, the only, there were only two people who knew what was up with me my therapist and then the, uh, the medical doctor, I then uh, went and accessed because I had incredible privilege at that time. Mm -hmm. I was working in the national capital region. I was, a, I was a Navy commander. All things are relative, a relatively senior officer with the ability to, to make some time while still doing my job. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had enough money in the bank because I was a Navy officer, we had flight pay, all of that good stuff where I could take money out of my own pocket to access that care while being in the closet and feeling terrible about hiding everything from my family mm -hmm. to that point, which I felt was the safe thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate that uh, that didn't completely ruin our relationship when the, when the time came for the conversation that had to come. Thank you so much for your openness and vulnerability. Um, you've described this moment or moments of uh, perhaps fear, but at the same time, moment of clarity. Um, and this all happened in the context of the don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah. Uh, could you tell our audience briefly, see, briefly what that policy is and uh, how it impacted your, your experience? Um, I never thought about don't ask, don't tell, except one time while I was serving un under it, even though I didn't realize it might apply to me. I'm not even mm -hmm. sure that it did apply to me mm -hmm. in that case because it was about um, gay and lesbian mm -hmm. service members. It, and it was, it was really um, the best word that comes to mind. It was perverse. Yes, you can be gay and lesbian and serve. Just don't, you know, ask, the service, the government can't ask you if you're gay and lesbian and you can't tell anyone or do anything that would, by, by that action or display, tell someone or give them the indication that you were gay and lesbian. It's, it's, it's logically, I, I don't know how you square the logic on that, but it was a compromise, as I understand it. The Clinton administration trying, wanted to go all the way, couldn't get it done. As we know now, we've always known the people that we understand and, and describe and bundle as LGBTQ plus people have always been a part of humanity. As long as you've had any kind of a military or any kind of organization, they've been in them. As I, as I like to kind of have fun, you know, in a little conspiratorial sense, we're everywhere, right? <laughs> we are, we have been, we still will be. Um, but it was at that time, I, I just knew, and I didn't directly associate it to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but it was like, oh, I can't stay any longer and be me. I can't stay in and pursue me. Um, I did think 
they might call me gay, that mm-hmm. trans would be equivalent to gay and whatever the shorthand was. Um, part of my job today involves dealing with the still lingering consequences of <clears throat> don't ask, don't tell, mm-hmm. and people who served under it and were discharged under it. It boiled down to you can't stay. The longer you stay, the more you're at risk of your service and your what I considered my maximum economic potential immediately at least coming out of service was tied to getting out cleanly. Mm. You know, um, it felt horrible. It, it, that would that felt wrong. So I have a real um, sympathy for, for for the folks who served under "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" mm. explicitly, and folks who were affected by it. I had my version of it. It wasn't exactly the same as theirs, but I certainly know what the what the feeling was like. Yeah. As you're talking about this, Miss Kelly, I'm thinking about the importance of representation. Why does it matter to have someone from a similar background, similar identity, similar lived experience in senior positions within the broader national security space? And in 2013, you joined the Obama administration as the first transgender veteran to serve as a presidential appointee. How do you feel about this idea of firsts, right? Is it, you know, I've talked to people, sometimes people are, it's great, but other folks are, don't want to be called first or feel like it's disappointing to have to be the first, right? Mm-hmm. So recently. Um, I didn't realize I was the first transgender. Well, it, it wasn't been hard to do the math because I was, I was, am the fourth ever openly trans person to, to be appointed by a president. Um, and that was probably the most motivating, the motivating reason behind me getting a, appointed at all is the the, uh, the administration did the first three in relatively short, close order to one another, and then there hadn't been any more for a while. And then the second term was approaching and advocacy organizations were, no, we were serious, you're going to keep doing this, right? There are trans people who can do the business of government. Mm-hmm. There were trans people doing the business. Um, people on the Hill, people out there in advocacy, nonprofit, you know, the, the wider space get some in the administration look like your country. Um, and so they went looking for more <laughs> and I stumbled onto their radar and got and got hired, but I got hired based on the experience of my accumulated military and uh, private sector experience. Um, so I was no, number four. Um, and then as we started, as the administration then decided and uh, then Secretary Carter, Defense Secretary Carter started the uh, exploration of and implemented the policy for open transgender service in 2016. And then that me being the veteran um, kind of came into play as well. Um, But the fact that I left service because of the fact I'm trans, I always like to and make take care to disassociate myself from the folks who were uh, affected and tried to take advantage of those policies before they were so abruptly undone. Um, and the ones who are serving now, um, a different experience from mine. I often find, I think that they may be more courageous than I have ever been because Mm -hmm. of going through that personal experience in front of the world, in front of your unit, in front of your service Mm -hmm. that way, while still wanting to serve and do the job that you could do because you want to do the job. Um, That identity um, and being, it's, it's modeling people have a better idea to understand that something's possible for them when they think they see it. If not exactly it, they say, Mm -hmm. But if she can do, she or he can do something like that, maybe I can do the thing that I want to do because it resonates for me. Or I just want to do that job. And if someone like me can do that job, I can do that job too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important. But it's also representative of the fact that talent doesn't know demographic. Mm-hmm. 
talent may be affected by your socioeconomic demographic, your ability to be well, and your ability to find the education and develop opportunities uh, can unfortunately be different due to your demographic. But the actual talent and the passion to serve your country and to try and do hard things resides in every slice of humanity, especially in, in America, which is probably the most representative chunk of humanity as it is. So whenever we think that the wrapping is determinative, you're a suboptimal leader and you're a suboptimal mm -hmm. organization by definition. People are due in, in your organization should be, should deserve that anybody who legitimately wants to try to be a part of your organization and do those things gets the fair chance to do so. It's about ability, it's about standards, it's not about, it shouldn't be about purely about identity. We can get into, is your hair too long? We've got, we've got ponytails now in the military, right? the world didn't end. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would even argue, right, that our institutions or our federal government hurts when we are not recruiting from the diversity um, that is represented in the United States. Um, I had the opportunity, thanks to President Obama, the third time he appointed me um, to serve on the National Commission on Military and National mm -hmm. Public Service. And mm -hmm. our charge was to go around America, talk to experts, but also talk to the American people about what it meant broadly, what it meant to serve America and the ways that were available to people. One of the hardest challenges is not identity, and it's about our demographics and our generational appreciation of what right looks like and what fairness looks like. And people who are in the, uh, the, the younger millennial uh, generation as well as Gen Z, Gen Z the world's going to be run by millennials and Gen Z within a minute. We need to be ready. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I'm quite confident that you are because you're as smart and as driven and as motivated as anybody else is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you listen to weirder music. Yeah, <laughs> you're, on, you're on the video games or whatever. <laughs> the TikTok. <laughs> I can't be on the TikTok. That's the one. The but, Gen Zers. Yes. Yeah. They're definitely on TikTok. <laughs> it, but... If you look for the if you look for the qualities that matter, they're there. Mm -hmm. Don't get distracted by the fashion or the music. Don't or the food. You know, don't look for the what matters, and it lies there. And if you're not, if you can't recognize that, suboptimal. To be kind. Miss Kelly, you were confirmed and sworn in as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness in 2021, making you the Department of Defense highest ranking openly transgender official and second to hold an office that requires Senate confirmation. If you had to explain very briefly to an audience that's never heard Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, never heard this title before, how would you explain the role? The job description is one sentence and then eight pages of responsibilities, essentially. And that job description is principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense and the Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness for all matters related to the readiness of the total force. DOD's total force means the active duty military, the reserves, the National Guard, our career civilians, and uh, the contractors, full-time equivalent people who do jobs for us inside our offices and our facilities. Um, those are 3.4 million people. Um, and we have about a $850 billion budget a year mm -hmm. where we're supposed to uh, achieve the national defense strategy and the aims of the president and the secretary of defense to deter attack and protect the American people. And the question is, are we ready to do that today, which is often conflated to fight tonight? 
and are we ready to do that over the longer term? And that j my job there was to uh, use analytic tools to determine if we're ready tonight and if we're ready for the for tomorrow. Um, also, how we educate and train that force, how we create that force that's able to do the mission, as well as how do we protect that force in the sense of safety and occupational health, because we do a lot of dangerous things, but we also do a lot of workaday things too, um, which is flying airplanes and sailing ships and submarines and operating vehicles, and, you know, over uh, tanks and armored vehicles and things. But we also have people who drive regular vehicles. We have industrial, we have facilities. If there's something in human technology or human endeavor, the DOD probably has at least one of it someplace to include medicine and, and science and hard science. So we have all of that. How do we make sure that that is working and safe and creating a force that's capable to do the mission it's been assigned? That's it. <laughs> that's very succinct and digestible. Because <laughs> when I looked at the title and the description, it becomes very Arcane. complex to understand. Yeah. I think you, you put it very well. Um, so we talked about Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, but if I were to go on the website, <laughs> I see another title, Performing the Duties of the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. How is that different? <laughs> so different. Um, <laughs> In the in the my what I used to call my day job, the one I was confirmed for, Assistant Secretary for Readiness, um, when I would travel and meet people, um, my stand-up routine would start with, "I'm the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness. I am the the readiness in personnel and readiness, the R in P and R. I am not 50% of my boss's portfolio. Mm -hmm. The people side is actually several other." assistant secretaries and directors of, of functions. Um, so that was me for two, for two years. I was just the happy readiness person with the, with the people, leaders around the table with my boss every week, once a week for about an hour, sit there and tell the boss what we're all up to. And some of my work involved my, my peers, my colleagues in our organization that had, because there's no readiness without people and people are there to actually achieve the readiness. Um, and so uh, dealt with the people who did manpower and policy. I dealt with the people who, did health, who do health affairs. I dealt with the people who do the human resources functions. I deal with, deal with the people who do what we call resiliency, um, suicide, sexual harassment, sexual assault prevention, um, diversity, equity, inclusion. Those are all the personnel side of things. Um, so I saw them every, once a week and I interact with them on a regular basis. I had no idea what they were really up to, as I learned when I had to move up uh, to, to be number two over that entire endeavor. Um, I had a passing understanding of the big rocks, as we, as we say, that they were working on, uh, the mine shafts of detail and complexity that they all involved, and the things that I had never seen before um, was surprising. I was really like, wait, I've been in this business for a long time, and I consider myself sort of an organizational nerd sometimes a little bit of a, of a bureaucratic Jedi in terms of like, here's how we're going to get that done because there's that meeting two months from now and we're going to fix our little red wagon between now and then and we're going to get done what needs to get done. Um, but even within my own organization where I was actually the senior subordinate um, by time and by rank, um, I didn't know what was always going on. So I've been playing catch up for the past three, you know, two and a half months 
on all that stuff. I've experienced all those things because I was a unit of measured readiness and a member with a family in the Department of Defense. And I have interagency experience and all like, but in terms of the depth of the stuff, um, my mind still boggles sometimes at the complexity that we have. Always something to learn every day, right? Uh, Ms. Kelly, as you know, we like to ask our guests to bring a memento that symbolizes a memorable moment in their career. Could you please describe to our listeners what you brought in here today uh, and why you decided to, to share this with us? So thank you. Um, I'm grateful for the, uh, for the ask. So find a memento and think <laughs> about it. Um, so this is a garden variety um, home fire extinguisher. Of, there's one very much like it uh, under my kitchen sink, right? <laughs> um, this one was a departing, a farewell gift from my team when I was the director of the Office of the Executive Secretariat at the Department of Transportation. Um, there I worked for um, directly for then Secretary Anthony Fox, Secretary of Transportation mm -hmm. in, his, in his front office team. Um, Essentially, in shorthand, as most people know, I was the executive secretary of, of transportation. We did all the secretary's correspondence with the White House, with the Congress, with the world. Uh, anything that he had to sign in official capacity, we brought together, made right, and put in front of him. Um, a, a thrilling experience, and I did it coming over from DOD. And I did, and I showed up at, at the back half of the final year of a two-term administration. Um, and I was hired because we, they didn't have uh, a director for a period of time. They knew they needed one, wanted one, because an executive secretary is a busy, busy organization in the final year of an administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really had concerns when I showed up to that team. I'm a career military person, DOD person. I was got myself around to being excited for the work, um, but then I realized, wait, are they going to understand a word or a motivation that comes out of me? Because I had always been in the world of defense. Even in the corporate world, they were defense-oriented companies. How's this going to go? None of them are, are former military. A lot of people in DOD are former military, have worked there for years and decades. How's this going to go? Once I finally showed up in that first day, and probably by the end of the second day, it's like, these are the exact same motivated professionals serving their country that I had ever known. They loved doing what they do. They loved correspondence. That was new to me, people loving paperwork. <laughs> um, but getting it right because they knew that the secretary only had so much time, which was exactly the place I came from, which was senior leader decision support. Then being actually assigned a thing that's legally valid and implementable, that's decision support too. Um, and that they enjoyed someone coming along who wanted to lead them as a team. Um, and so what the fire extinguisher represents was um, the office had long had a, 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 a motto, which was the executive secretariat puts out the fires before the secretary ever smells smoke. <laughs> because oftentimes things come up, they need it tomorrow, and it's a hot mess. Like you miss somebody who should have read this two weeks, a month ago to sign off on it. And if they have a problem, we have a problem because it won't be fast to mm -hmm. fix. Or there's so many typos in this thing, I'm stopping right now. How did this many typos mm -hmm. get to my desk, let alone my ed through my editors? <laughs> and, and we have to go back, all those things. Well, meanwhile, the clock is ticking. He needs to sign it so he can present it to Senator whoever or tell them the bus stop is coming. So um, they almost wrecked me when they gave that to me because it harkens <laughs> back to a, a, a unique gift when I was flying in squadrons that we gave our, our squadron commander. Um, he, his prize pickup truck that he bought got hit and he was, he was heartbroken. It took months for it to get fixed and it got hit again. 
and he was devastated. And then he was soon ready to leave. So we went to a junkyard on the border with Mexico and Tijuana and found a Toyota truck tailgate. And all 30 of us signed this big tailgate and gave it to him. And he about lost it too. So I, f I felt the echo of that truck tailgate come back, this time in, in, a, in, in a portable fashion. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great point about the fact that there's no organization without the people, right? And the culture that also you're creating, right? How do your people feel like coming in every day, right? How yeah. do you make them feel? Uh, and the culture that you create. And Ms. Kelly, you said, you said earlier something that will, that really resonated with me. There's no readiness without people. And I think that makes me think about, if we're talking about military readiness, then who gets to be part of the military, yeah. right? Um, and during the Trump administration, you were quite outspoken um, and you were an advocate against Trump's transgender military ban. Why is it so important to make sure that we include and accept transgender troops? I immediately take it, it's the, it's the, um, it's the discussion we had a little earlier yeah. about where talent lies. Talent lies everywhere. And when you decide that one kind, and they're not kind of people, they're just people, we're all human beings. All the other distinctions after that are ones we decide to apply, frankly. Um, but that's re it's representative of the fact that you say, because of who you are, you're incapable and you're dangerous and you're unworthy. You know who, you know who else had that applied to them? Black Americans. Mm, absolutely. Women. Um, specifically for a short period of time, Japanese Americans, they were interned. They finally decided to allow some of them. They begged to serve in World War II. And when they were allowed to, they became some of the most decorated units in the army and some of the most intense combat anybody saw in World War II. Gay and lesbian people, right? Oh, don't ask, don't tell. They're already there. But if they're actually out, everything's gonna fall apart. Good order and discipline, small unit cohesion, all of those things. You can't integrate the force, all of that. You can't, okay, we let women in and they can wear the uniform and they're not part of a core or something like that. But fly airplanes, that took till the 70s, 80s, excuse me, early 80s. Fly combat-coded airplanes, actually fly all the airplanes for all the reasons. Each time there was a prophecy of that America's military would fail, America would be invaded, or whatever, the world would end. Wrong, 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 wrong. Transgender people are no different. They were already high performing, mm -hmm. or else they'd be on the street. That's one of the things about the military. We don't, hand, we don't hang around, hang on to people very long who can't cut it or are negatives to their organizations. Cut through. So if they're still with you, and they're willing to go through this to stay with you, what's your problem? And also, you know, part of it was, it's the cost, it's this, all of which were mm -hmm. uh, conflated, inflated, misconstrued, to be kind, and we're wrong, right? Yeah. There's a, the cost of the care required to take care of those people and treat them um, with dignity and can allow them to continue their service was loss, less annually, is less annually than the cost of just one drug. And you can look that up, you can find out which one it is, but it's an erectile dysfunction drug. <laughs> Data matters, I did not know that. Um, I very much enjoyed reading your article, Transphobia and National Security, and I want to read to you um, a line um, in your article. It is not the presence of transgender service members which threatens military readiness. It is policies very discrimination against them. How do you deal with people that say this whole woke agenda, you know, when we've heard that about a lot of different topics, right, including diversity, equity, inclusion, um, 
it's causing significant harm to our military re military readiness. How do you answer that? Um, I first answer it with uh, answering a question with a question. Could you please define wokeism for me? What does that look like? Don't don't give me hand wavy. I'm sure you haven't gotten a great response, have you? <laughs> um, I haven't been given the courtesy of being actually posed that question, which I believe says something. I know I've been the subject, personally been the subject of conversations at that point by people who have not had the courtesy to talk to me about whether or not they think I can do my job. Um, but they, they haven't bothered to describe it in the ways that we describe all the things we do focusing on the Department of Defense. So which specific aspect of the performance of the mission of the Department of Defense do you want to apply that to and show me how it's less than you know high performing or performing differently because of that? I haven't seen those things come up. Often it's attributed to uh, the challenges with recruitment or retention. I take that to mean that they haven't been pa paying attention to the long gestating challenge with recruitment and retention mm -hmm. that we are working extraordinarily hard on in which my boss and I have the lead for the Secretary of Defense on within, within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. This is a generational challenge that America has in a modern world and a world that changed in response to the ending of the Cold War, that this start of the war on terror, the post 9-11 world, a lot of economic and societal factors that all come together. Since we became an all-volunteer force, we just hit the 50th, we're in the 50th anniversary year of the ending of the all ending of conscription and the start of the all-volunteer force. All of those things have come together while successive generations of Americans have come out in a very different economy, mm -hmm. different approaches to education, social issues. And that's what puts us, I believe, those macro factors coming together have put us in the place that we're in. Not that all of a sudden somebody invented a new term of art to define seeing people as individuals and respecting them for their are. That's, that's an easy out where you're looking to gain some kind of short-term advantage as opposed to dealing with the real issues at play. How do you deal with these uh, personal attacks on your uh, identity and career? And I know there have been several, including a, a recent one in just a, a couple of months ago. How do you, how do you deal with that? That was, um, there were two parts to that episode on the floor of the House. One uh, dealt with um, an amendment uh, under what's called the Holman Rule, which was um, authorized by uh, this current Congress. Um, I looked at that, which was to um, take my pay down to a dollar mm -hmm. a year because I'm really bad at my job. I, I challenge them to tell me what my job is and how I do it. Um, again, the courtesy of a conversation. Call me to a hearing table. I would love to be there. That's my job. It's, it is our government's. It's, it's our form of government. My responsibility as a senior government official to testify and to talk about how I do what I do on behalf of the secretary and the president didn't get that courtesy. Um, the whole, But it's a legitimate rule of Congress. Folks can think of whether or not it's a good one, um, whether or not it would have passed. It didn't pass in my case. It wasn't added as an amendment to the 24, 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. Um, but the other part was a personal attack on me, my humanity, um, how my identity may or may not um, inform my ability to do my job. In all frankness, um, the very morning I got the very first email asking me if I'd be interested in having a conversation with the White House about being considered for the nomination for the position I have now, um, that was a quick beat away going, what is that job? Quick Google on the phone. And then, oh, 
something very much like what happened on the Florida House I signed up for in that first minute, honestly. Um, you talked about um, the burden or the responsibilities of being a first, yeah, number two, but in that first mm -hmm. wave of, of, of presidentially appointed Senate confirmed person. Based on the, the cultural environment we've been in for a few years now, I've expected it for two and a half years, frankly surprised it took this long. Um, I'd rather it not happen. Um, but at the same time, I'm not going away. The way I go away is um, if the president asks me to, um, or they go through the they go through the full congressional process to, to remove me. Um, first, people who go through the door first, whether they recognize it or accept it or not, your your actions, your performance will inform how high that bar or barrier is for the people that come, that can and should come behind you. I want to, to make sure to mention uh, to our audience out in national security, an organization that uh, you co-founded um, and the importance of representation that we talked about, mentorship as well, mm -hmm. uh, and seeing people that look like you, that you can relate to from similar uh, backgrounds. Uh, and I know there's been incredible events uh, and programming, and we, uh, uh, our program at CSIS has partnered with Out in National Security for some engagement um, as well. So want to thank you also for taking the time to put together such an important organization, not just for the LGBT community, but for the broader national security space as well. Thank you. Ms. Kelly, to close, unfortunately, we're uh, running out of time. We like to ask our guests three questions every episode of Driving Impact Rapid Fire. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. What are three words you would use to describe your career? Inconceivable, humbling, exhilarating. In your opinion, what does it mean to be American? to be part of something bigger than myself that just about anybody in the world can join if their heart is in their, their heart and their mind is in the right place. And what is giving you hope right now? Young people, Gen Z. I got the opportunity to visit a uh, pretty classified uh, Department of Defense facility uh, earlier this year. And uh, doing the business there was a young woman uh, in the Air Force, an enlisted Air Force member, had just turned 20 a couple months before. Um, we had taught her and she had learned a very important foreign language for us. And she was engaged simultaneously. She was bringing the language. Another young person, not quite as young, um, was bringing the cyber expertise. And with them was another law enforcement enabled person. And they were a team that were combating state-sponsored international criminal organizations who were trying to mess with the American economy and she was doing it live in real time, and she wasn't even 21 yet. And I looked at her and we talked for about a minute. I'm like, I think I'm gonna be working for you before very long. And she's Gen Z. We're, we, we're in good hands if we can just get out of their way. Definitely, and that's a consistent theme that we've seen with our guests, mentioning Gen Zers and younger millennials are as the future. Ms. Kelly, it's been such an honor to have such a wonderful conversation with you today. Thank you for taking the time uh, to share with us your story. Thank you for your openness, vulnerability, your service and leadership to our country. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining our conversation with the Honorable Sean Skelly on how she became the highest ranking openly trans official at the Department of Defense. Do you want to hear more exclusive stories from policy leaders? Be sure to follow Driving Impact on YouTube, Spotify, 
or CSIS.org. <music>